Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. If this is your first time listening to SpexCast, thank you. We're a group of students belonging to a student faculty research organization called RIT Space Exploration at the Rochester Institute of Technology. You can learn more about Spex and SpexCast at our website, spex.rit.edu. My name is Phil, and today my co-host Drew and I speak to Dr. Jen Connolly, a visiting professor at RIT with a PhD in extragalactic astronomy. With Dr. Connolly, we talk about the TRAPPIST-1 system, which is a star about 40 light years away that has seven Earth-sized planets. This is a very interesting discovery, and we talk with her about what made this discovery possible and what it means for the scientific community. Let's listen in to our conversation from Friday, February 24th. Okay. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, sure. I'm Dr. John Connolly. I am a visiting assistant professor here at RIT, and I teach everything from very intro-level physics to graduate-level astrophysics. And do you consider yourself an astronomer? Uh, yes, I do. I'm, I consider myself an observational astronomer, specifically. What's the difference? I actually take data, and I almost always leave the real theory and simulations to somebody else. So I take data and I analyze that data. But if, for instance, I want to model a system, then I will ask somebody else to help me with that. On Wednesday, um, NASA made a big announcement about a system called TRAPPIST-1. What's so special about this system? Well, it's, it's got a whole bunch of little planets close to a pretty cool star. Pretty and cool just, isn't interesting. I know. It's very cool, and it's ultra cool. It is actually an, technically an ultra cool dwarf star. <laughs> I mean... So that means it's colder and smaller than our own sun? Much smaller. It's about the size of Jupiter. Oh, wow. It's, That's yeah. really small. So, so since it's so small, that means it has weaker gravity, right? So are these planets really close? So these are very, very close planets, um, and they're pretty small, so they're kind of on Earth-size scales, which is why it's so exciting. So we've got seven of these, the seven dwarfs. I don't know why people are not making more jokes about this. I mean, come on. It's an ultra-cool dwarf with seven little planets we know of so far. Um, So it's got seven Earth-sized planets. Yes. And a few of those are in the habitable zone. Yes. Habitable zone is basically defined where the radiation is similar to what we have here on Earth. And that's, so it's a very biased definition, but a couple of these are nicely in that um, habitable zone. And that's like where water can exist as a liquid. Uh, It doesn't freeze and it doesn't evaporate away. So technically, in theory, these planets could have liquid water, or liquid water could exist on the surface. Exactly. That's the definition. It doesn't mean that, that there is water, but there could be. Right. This discovery is super exciting for a few reasons. One, there's a lot of planets that have been discovered around this star. There are seven, and because they're Earth-sized. Um, I'm tempted myself, especially since they're in the habitable zone, to call them Earth-like. No, don't Earth. do it. Don't One. do it. What's the difference? <laughs> Well, is is Venus Earth-like? It's closer to Earth-like than Jupiter is. Sure, but would you want to live on Venus? No. No. It's hot as... Oh. <laughs> so that, to me, um, to me, I try to avoid equating terrestrial-like planets, which we think these are. So we do think these are rocky. So they're not big, gaseous things. 
they're little balls of rock and ice in, in the case of the ones who are a little further away from the star. That doesn't mean it would be a nice place for us to go hang out. So I always, when I think Earth-like, we immediately have this idea of... Lush, green, Vacation spots, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's not necessarily the case. We don't know. But is this still scientifically significant in the grand scheme of what has been discovered? It's always good to have targets, and that's what we have now. We have a whole bunch of targets in a single system that we can follow up to see if we can see, for instance, if what their atmosphere is made of. How will planets like these, specifically these seven, be studied in the future? So what will happen now is the team that's been studying them, I'm sure, has requested additional time on telescopes to explore these specifically. Because what we have right now is from the Spitzer Space Telescope specifically is, is what this uh, particular announcement, well, those were the observations that this, re that this announcement was about. There had been earlier observations of this system. We knew of three of these little planets before this. Then we followed up with Spitzer. So now that we, we know from Spitzer what happens to the light from the star, we can now go look specifically for light from the planets. So we can distinguish what is what light is coming from the star versus what light is coming from the planets. And then once we decide, oh, this light is coming from a planet, we can analyze that and know more about the planet itself? Yeah, now we know exactly where they are. Okay. Uh, exact being an astronomical term for roughly. Uh, <laughs> we, know, we know basically where these guys are. We have a pretty good idea of their orbits, except for the seventh one which has a longer period, so it takes longer to orbit around its star. So we only saw one passing of this particular planet in front of the star. So we don't know as much about it uh, as we do about the other ones. But we, we have a pretty good idea it's there. Right, and you mentioned the way these are studied by observing them with things like Spitzer. Spitzer is an infrared telescope, is that correct? That is correct. And so it looks at the star and we know the size and how far away based on the when the planets pass in front of the star. So we look at changes in the brightness? Yes, we, we make what's called a light curve. And so you look at the relative brightness over time. And what happens is as you stare at the star, when a planet passes in front of it, you cover a little bit of light from that star. And the, then that causes a dip in this light, light curve. And the cadence of those dips and the shape of those dips is what actually tells us about those planets. So can we only get the size and distance from the star from this data? How do we know so much about these planets if we're just looking at the change in brightness? One of the nice things about having so many of them and the planets being so close to each other is that the orbits um, are, are near what we call resonance. And so from that information, from the specific orbital information, we can tell a little bit more about these planets than we might um, otherwise be able to, for instance, if you just had one or two planets or if they were very far away from each other. So all of these very, um, it, it's the intricacies in the light curve that actually allow us to tell what we know about these particular guys. And how precise does that data get well, the more orbits you have, the better. And as I said, the one planet that is furthest away 
that we know of. I mean, there might be a bunch of other planets in the system we, we haven't detected that are further out. Uh, but the one um, that we, we only saw one passing of is the one who has basically the largest error bars on its, its properties. So why infrared? Why not visible light? Well, because this is an ultra-cool dwarf. So in visible light, uh, it emits a bit differently than, for instance, our sun. Our sun gives off tons and tons of light in the visible wavelengths. That's why I can see you right now. Uh, but this star is cooler, and the planets are cooler too. And in general, when you're looking for exoplanets, they're not going to be hot like a star. So when we follow up, we will also do some studies in the infrared to look specifically for the planets. I'm sure we will study the planet's light, and it's not just uh, in reflected light. Hopefully, we will be able to detect these guys, especially the ones that are closer in. They will be radiating themselves in the infrared, um, which is them absorbing the light, processing the light, etc. cetera. Um, there's a little bit of a difference between just absorbing light and, and reflecting light. But I'm sure we will be able to study some of these guys. The trick is that you've got to get them in the right position where they're not um, they're not obscured by the light of the star itself. So we're sort of switching modes. We went from looking for the planets blocking the star's light, and now we will go specifically to looking for the planet's light. And is that the information that we would get from that light, is that going to give us the size of the planets? Is that going to give us information about their atmospheric composition? What we're going to be after is the atmospheric composition. That's really the driving force here. And so we can go from me being very, very specific about saying their Earth size to, okay, perhaps some of them might be more Earth-like. How can you, where do you draw that line? Oh, that is sort of a philosophical debate. Uh, one of the things that we look for um, are atmospheric um, spectral lines. So what, what that means is, is we, we look at the chemical composition of the atmosphere and for some people, if you see, for instance, water vapor, then, boy, that looks kind of Earth-like. However, we see that in planets that we wouldn't consider Earth-like here in our solar system. But water's really always the huzzah moment for any of these atmospheric studies. Can we trust the data? How should we interpret this news? I think the caveat I mentioned before of this planet that's furthest away that has the longest orbital period, that's the one that I trust the least. Um, but you'd still have to have a very strange coincidence um, to get a false detection for it. Um, the, the error bars are large on some of these measurements. So when they quote the masses, for instance, you can see in the paper that there are some big error bars, roughly the size of the mass, yeah. <laughs> right? So it's sort of like, oh, it's roughly Earth-sized. And that's, that's probably accurate. But um, they may be able to refine that further. I'm not sure. The mass was like 0.85. Earth masses plus or minus 0.5 Earth yeah, masses. Exactly. But in general, this is trustworthy and, and light curves are extremely reliable. We understand them very, very well, um, especially in this kind of post-Kepler era where we're, we've found lots and lots and lots of planets now. Um, the exoplanet studies are 
sort of well-established. So in general, you can trust these data. So when we look at the paper, they've published the sizes, the radius, the mass. Can we tell anything more from this study, or are we still waiting for more studies to be made to really understand what's going on here? I think we've gotten um, perhaps as much as we can from the existing data, and there will be follow-ups. And I should state that these data are awesome. Spitzer, which is a space telescope, spent a month just staring at the system. That's pretty unheard of, actually. It's very difficult to, to get telescope time, uh, especially on space-based observatories. Is that because uh, NASA might believe this is very important? Yes. So it's because we knew of these three planets from a different study, which is actually why they're called TRAPPIST, is from this other study. And they, they said, OK, this looks like a great target to just sit and stare at. And it took us a full month to get these data. So already, this is pretty impressive. And I mean, a month of Spitzer time is truly astonishing. What's typical? There are a lot of times when you get Spitzer time, you get maybe a couple hours. Hours? Maybe. That's the typical length of exposure time. Now, there are big, what we call legacy projects, where you will um, put in this huge proposal with many, many collaborators and get more time than that to, to go over either a lot of targets or to look at one target for a long time. But a month? Was, oh. was TRAPPIST one of those major major proposals with a lot of people? Or is this unusual to get that much time for one system for one paper? Just looking at the list of authors, th this was a sizable collaboration. Uh, and I don't know. I haven't gone back and looked for the original proposal. I haven't read that specifically to see what led up to this. Um, but granting this amount of time for one telescope to just do nothing but look at the same spot uh, is exceptional. And in the future, when we study it, are there going to be longer studies with Spitzer? Are they going to be using something like James Webb Space Telescope, which is also an infrared space telescope? JWST is going to be perfect for this, yeah. and I can't wait. Is this uh, what it was designed for? Is this type of the type of study that got it going? It's one of many studies, honestly. Um, JWST is sort of our next-level Hubble Space Telescope. So um, wider wavelength range, lots and lots of infrared capability. So JWST is going to be perfect for this. But I wouldn't be surprised if already they're going to be collecting more data with telescopes like Spitzer. They may actually look for other interesting uh, things in the system and other wave bands. I'm not sure. Um, I haven't heard them announce uh, further observations, but they don't always do that. Do you think James Webb is going to spend another appreciable amount of time on this system, or will it be able to spend a shorter amount of time? What are your expectations for uh, JWST observations? That's a really good question, and I don't know. I don't know enough about the exposure times and noise levels, et cetera, for JWST. Um, I should start thinking about that, because I should start thinking of applying for JWST <laughs> time myself. But uh, it really depends on what you're looking at. So a, it, this wouldn't be a repeat of the information that we've already got, right? We'd be looking at the planet. So it's a, it's a com you're sort of comparing apples to oranges when you compare those two sets of observations. Gotcha. Um, and sometimes these sorts of discoveries spur relatively quick response, which is not the typical thing in astronomy. You request time on a telescope, and then you 
wait four months I mean, to actually tel- know you get it, and then you might have to wait more months to actually get the data. And so. the telescopes have to be in the right place in the right time to look at the right spot in the sky? Well, space space is easier that way. Um, but yes, you definitely have to have them positioned appropriately. Making a discovery like this, um, right now it feels very important. Is this a critical discovery in terms of our understanding of the universe or other solar, other systems that may exist in our galaxy? Uh, I'd have to say that I'm a bit biased and would say I don't think it's fundamental yet um, because we have found many exoplanets at this point. But again, these are targets to follow up that could provide um, a lot of new information and insight about these other systems. So there have been thousands of other exoplanets discovered. Are these the most promising targets or are there even more exciting ones that maybe those of us who haven't been studying astrophysics haven't heard of? You would have heard of it, definitely. So to have all of these, you know, Earth-sized planets at a relatively close target. I think these the TRAPPIST star is something like 40 light years away, um, so relatively accessible for us. All nicely lined up because, again, in order for a planet to, to cause this dip in the light, it has to be perfectly aligned. Um, so it, this is a great, great system. and. Um, Hopefully, we'll find more and more of these, and it will become passe, and oh, yeah, so another one of those. But it's pretty new right now. Yeah, does this indicate that systems like TRAPPIST-1 are common? Well, we have a lot of theory of how you form a solar system, and that changes constantly because we just keep finding different systems. And initially, when we were finding these exoplanets, we were at the opposite end of the spectrum, so to speak. We were finding really, really massive things very close to their stars, so Jupiter-like things close to their stars. Uh, For this one, uh, it gives us a very different type of system to focus on. So if you can think of studying exoplanets as studying a range of different systems, um, I think that that helps sort of give you a sense of what future studies are going to be and how we're going to actually piece together how this all works. Because at the moment, we don't have a very good idea of exoplanet formation. So this is also a very important thing about this particular system. It gives us a different kind of system to explore. People listening to this podcast are interested in space and astronomy. Is there anything you can recommend or advise to a citizen astronomer in terms of interpreting news items like this or how they can contribute to the astronomy community? That's a really great question or series of questions. I think in terms of processing this sort of news, more and more I tell people, you're going to see in your Facebook feed or Twitter or whatever, some big pretty picture uh, that is from mm, who knows where, and you're going to click on it. And it may be from a source that is very, very reliable and has an eye to reporting these sorts of things, that have experts that are actually doing the writing, or it may be kind of more of a pop generalization of the discovery. And it usually only takes you one extra click to find that expert article. And I tell people to do that because you just learn so much more that way. And in terms of how they can contribute, oh, there are all these great citizen science initiatives, including something called Galaxy Zoo, for instance, where there are constantly new projects that um, citizens who just have a computer and internet access can 
actually help us do the science. And that has gone way beyond astronomy. Um, so my sister's a professor of biology, and she knows Galaxy Zoo for completely different reasons than I do. Uh, so whatever you're interested in, whatever you see and catches your attention and makes you want to do more, you can. You definitely can. So that's one example. And there are lots of other links. If you, if you just search citizen science, that will lead you to all sorts of fun things to do that are actually scientifically useful. One other thing we wanted to talk about later today was a citizen science project where the data from WISE has been made public for citizens to look for Planet Nine. Do you want to comment on that? So I don't know the details of that particularly. Uh, it's great because space is big. It's actually, and we have more and more data, and you know, just never enough grad students to sort through it, <laughs> never enough professors to help them, et cetera. So these major um, publicly available initiatives uh, make me so happy for science in general. And any way that we can engage people uh, to, to help us with this mountain of universe that we have is, is, is going to advance science. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpexCast, where we talk to Dr. Jen Connolly, a visiting assistant professor of astronomy at RIT. If you would like to get in touch with the show, uh, you can reach out to us via email at specscast.com, tweet at RITSpecs, or like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash RITSpecs. If you like what we're doing here on the podcast, you can write a review and rate us on iTunes or whichever podcasting platform you use to listen to the show. We really appreciate it. Our music you're listening to right now is by Nelson Scott. You can find more of his music on Spotify, SoundCloud, or his personal website, thenelsonscott.com. Thank you very much for one of my favorite parts about talking with Dr. Connolly actually happened after our main discussion about Trappist One. Are you laughing at me? I'm recording. Oh. <laughs> after we turned away from our outline and the conversation kind of went in its own direction, but was interesting just the same. And now here's the rest of our talk with Dr. Jen Connolly, a visiting assistant professor of astronomy at RIT. I love the uh, metaphor you used. Uh, a mountain of universe that we it's have. It's a mountain of universe. It really is. And it's like we are standing, jacket, like we're standing at the bottom going. But it's just and a mountain only, of universe. It's like a speck of dust of ocean. It's just, but that's how I feel usually because we see, and you only see this, you can see kind of generally the broad shape, but as you climb, it just gets more and more interesting and more and more unexpected. And that's why I use that metaphor, because I like hiking. And when I'm out hiking, you know, especially if there's a cloud in your way, that's a perfect me metaphor for what I have to deal with all the time in my science. You know, getting through the dust, so to speak, or using different wavelengths to explore, because what we see with our eyes is only a fraction of what's there. So I, I regularly use that, because for me it is a giant mountain that I hope we will all climb together and help each other along the way, because. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck at the bottom going, well, that's pretty, but not really understanding it. And so we, we see certain big stages and trying to connect the dots and figure out what the physical processes are. That's what I love doing personally. Um, but I also love just trying to understand our neighborhood because this is exciting, but I'd be just as happy if we 
spent a lot of time and energy sending a probe to one of the Jovian or Saturnian moons. Because we'll get there in our lifetime. Well, and we don't know. We don't know. We don't even know that much about the surface of Venus because it's hell. And, And so I'm like, it's right there. They're right there. And we have other places that have liquid water in our solar system. For all we know, there are things sliming their way around all over the place. We have no idea. We assume we might have some atmospheric tracers. Yeah, I mean, come on. And my sister, it's nice having a biologist sister. My brother-in-law is a chemist. So we talk about life in the universe all the time because I'm trying to figure out if what the astronomers are saying is crap. Because <laughs> it might be. Because we don't, that's not our background. That's the, mm-hmm. we, we don't have the knowledge base to really, really, really understand. There are astrobiologists, but most of us don't know what we're talking about when it comes to the specifics. And so I can go to my chemist brother-in-law and be like, can there be things other than carbon-based like life? And he go, mm, okay, here, let, let's look at the structure instead of just going yes or no. And I have a biologist sister-in-law who goes habitable zone. <sighs> right. Right? Because it's like, look at Earth. Look at the worst places on Earth. Ranges from like 180 maybe to negative 40 on and the, the surface. And the driest, Earth. driest, and driest places, and the deepest oceans. And everywhere we go, we find stuff running around. At least, you know, sliming around. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you go two kilometers underground, and there's stuff there. There's life. Two kilometers underground on our planet. So habitable zone is something I always am like, but what does that mean? One of the interesting things about this Trappist system is this ultra-cool dwarf stars sometimes flare a lot. Our sun doesn't do that often, thankfully. It might have earlier in its life. But a lot of people think that if you have common flares, that would be really bad for creating life as we know it anyway. And so is this system out there a good candidate? Well, we also need to understand the star a little bit more to figure out whether or not our our understanding of habitable would really apply to this particular system. Um, because this is this is a tiny little star, and it basically does the same thing forever. And by forever, I mean like the lifetime of the whole universe, like 13 billion years. All it does is the same thing. And None of these types of stars have died yet. That's, it's a totally different kind of star than what we have in our system. So even though I'm an extragalactic astronomer and I love watching the opposite end of the spectrum, which is you know entire galaxies where I don't care about any single star in that system, I do, do not care. I care about how stars form in bulk and you can't understand a galaxy without understanding that process. So everything connects eventually, and I get excited about most of it. You're listening to Specscast. We'll see you next week.